0: A reading from the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, chapter fifty-eight, verses six to twelve, and that's on page seven seventy seven in your Bibles, Pew Bibles. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice? and untie the cords of the yoke to set the oppressed free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe him and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and he will say, Here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with a pointing finger and malicious stalk, And if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always, He will satisfy your needs in a sun scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild their ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called <clears throat> repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets and dwellings. And we'll also read from Colossians chapter 3, verses 16 to 17. And that's on page 1235. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, Do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of God.
1: Let's pray together. God,
0: we're thankful
1: for this, your word. We're thankful that you still use this ancient text to speak into our very complex contemporary world and lives that your spirit enlivens this word and that it speaks directly to us. And so help us to hear you speak to us this morning. We pray again those words of that song that as we hear voice of God, you would lead us on, that you would be our guide. We pray these things in your holy name. Amen. As Phil mentioned, this past week we had the Feast of the Ascension, this Christian holiday that doesn't get very much play anymore. I think it was Phil's blog post on our website that mentioned maybe it's because it can't be profited on that makes it not very good for our culture to pay attention to. And yet the church tries as hard as it can, some churches better than others, to remember this feast day every year, to mark this occasion every year in the life and the ministry of Jesus when Jesus ascends into heaven. But there are lots of problems with this thing that happens. And so I want to tell you the story, to go back a little bit in the story and to tell a bigger picture of it so maybe we can appreciate together some of the questions that must be bubbling to the surface. For three years, these men and women had been following Jesus. For three years, they'd been modeling their lives closely after him, having him near at hand all the time to rebuke them, to call them back to the right path for them to see him living a life of worship to God with full humanity and to be challenged to do the same themselves. And of course, we all know that this first got off the rails a bit on Good Friday. Having just celebrated Lent and Holy Week together not that long ago, we can imagine and remember together the dismay of the disciples at losing that but then we also remember that very good news. There's a resurrection, and what was considered lost springs back into renewed life and brings with it restored hope. These disciples are called out of their boat once again. They are made to remember once more their life of being called to lives of work and worship. They have their master and their friend, Jesus, ahead of them again, paving the way for them, leading them on the road that he wants them walking down. And of course, what we don't talk about so much is the confusion which follows a mere 40 days later. Jesus ascends. Jesus is raised beyond new life. Jesus is raised to the right hand of the Father, and that's a place where these disciples aren't. They're still longing for the fulfillment of all those things that Jesus had been talking about. And so when Jesus ascends, there's got to be a, a note of bitterness on their tongues that's just a little bit too familiar after that loss at Easter. We can hear the confusion in the story itself Acts 1 tells us when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? Because why else would, be, would Jesus be leaving them if it wasn't to finally do everything he said that he was going to do? But it goes on that he replied, it is not for you to know the times or the periods the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power by the Holy Spirit And he will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And when he said this, while they were still watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took them out of their sight. While he was going, and they were gazing up toward heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood by them. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? This Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. There's plenty of confusion here. Why is Jesus leaving if the job isn't done? Why was he raised to new life again if he was just going to leave us? When is he coming back? What are we supposed to do without him here by our side? He's been leading us for so long. Who is going to teach us now? How are we going to get to where we need to be? He mentioned the Spirit, but when's that supposed to come? Some of these questions may be our own questions about our faith. There's ascension confusion all around us. And I actually wonder if it's not true that for those of us who participate in this practice of community worship together regularly, if we don't experience a kind of ascension confusion ourselves, caught looking up into the sky, waiting for something to happen, and needing somebody to come alongside us during the week and say, no, stop just gazing off, do what you need to be doing. Maybe, in fact, our ascension confusion comes right about every Monday morning. While none of us may have had the bodily Jesus to mentor us personally and intensively, as these disciples did, to model our lives after him and learn from him in every single moment of seeing him there beside us, we do have this particular rhythm of Sunday worship as a community. This rhythm of life where we say together that we are encountering God. That God is present here in this time, in this place. That it is God who calls us into worship. That it is God who forgives our sins. That it is God who speaks through his word. And that it is God who blesses us as we go out. This is surely a God-saturated and God-present time. And then Monday morning rolls around, and we have work to go to or schools to attend. We have errands to run. We have whatever it is that fills our weeks. And sometimes we're caught. We're caught dazed and confused, wondering where that God of Sunday worship has gone. And what this Monday to Saturday, God, is supposed to be like. Where's the God for those days? What are we supposed to do now, God? Where do we go from here? Why have you left us on Sunday? So far in this series on worship, we've identified a couple of things together. We've identified that as people, we were made to worship that we were made to be in a particular kind of relationship with our creator that we call worship, and that we learn that worship is formative, that whatever we worship shapes our hearts and our lives to make us more and more like itself. We may worship wealth and find that our hearts are being molded into some kind of greedy monster. We may worship some kind of media, that causes us to become envious and jealous. But what should be clear about whatever it is that we worship or our culture worships is that it's not limited to a particular time when we're aware that we're worshiping it. Our worship here is not limited to Sunday morning when we make the intention of coming to church. If we worship the media, I'm sure you know this actually, your favorite program on TV, Is it just limited to that half-hour slot it has on the CBC? Or do you find yourself thinking about it through the week? Do you find yourself connecting things in your lives to the story of the characters? Do you find it shaping the way that you see the world? The things we worship are not just a small part of our week. They shape our lives. And so it is the same way with our worship of God. We have this time together on Sunday, which is so important for shaping our hearts to become more like Jesus's heart. But if we find that we're engaging in worship seriously, if God is really impacting our lives, our worship spills out from this time together into all of our weeks. Jesus goes with us beyond this time together as a community, and we should find ourselves experiencing and meeting and seeing Jesus in all kinds of places with all kinds of people, because if we're worshiping Jesus, he occupies our thoughts, and he shapes how we live and see the world. Our worship is a Monday to Saturday affair, too. Colossians begins to point this reality out to us by saying, let the word of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. That's our worship together. That's Sunday in this building, and that's home church communities throughout the week all across this city. That's what we normally identify as our worship. And it teaches us how to love each other, how to read the Bible, how to listen for God's voice, how to be thankful and joyful, and even how to lament what needs writing still. But Colossians continues, doesn't it? It continues by saying, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him suddenly our worship just got a whole lot bigger. Whatever you do, whether you're saying it or you're putting your body into it, whatever it is that you're doing, you should be doing it in the name of Jesus. That's the goal. The goal is that every word we say, every word I say, I should be able to say, Jesus is saying this every action I put my hands to and my body to, every action we participate in in our work and in our life and community, we should be able to say, Jesus is doing this. But just a few verses down in Colossians, verse 23 says, whatever you do, work at it with your whole being, for the Lord and not for people. So not only should we be able to say that Jesus is doing this, but also somehow I'm doing this for Jesus. We are representing Jesus to the world and participating in his life of worship in our everyday lives too. This is where we get the notion in our Reformed tradition that our work is our worship. That every day when you go into the office or you volunteer at a not-for-profit or you study for a class, that these things are your worship because you're doing them for God and in the name of Jesus. That's the same thing that we say our worship together, isn't it? Our worship together is for God, and it's in the name of Jesus. And so when the author to the Colossians tells us that everything we do should be in the name of Jesus and for God, the connection's made. Our lives are our worship. Every time I write a paper, I should be far less concerned than I am about what the professor will think or what my grade will be at the end of the day. But I should be doing my very best to be honoring God with my work that I take seriously because God has called me to this time of study in this season of my life. And just as every patient a Christian doctor sees should be cared for with such compassion and tenderness and seriousness in the work, not just for that doctor's reputation or the well-being of the patient, though those are very good reasons, but also because good work well done brings glory to God and our spiritual acts of worship. Our work is our worship. In Isaiah 58, we hear God rebuking a people who had become very good at that first kind of worship. The worship that we do together on Sundays and in our home churches through the week, our worship together, the religious, the obvious worship, they were great at it. They excelled. They were amazing worshipers of God. But their lives, that rest of the week worship, that was something that was just falling apart at the seams. They did not get that at all. They would fast, and they, then they would abuse their workers. They would seek to oppress the poor and the needy. They would profit off the hungry and ignore the needs of the oppressed. They were great Sabbath worshipers, but they were just the worst life worshipers. And so God says, is not this the worship I have chosen, to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. God's saying, isn't this the all of life kind of worship that I've been desiring? Isn't it obvious that your actions should be worshiping me and not just your time on Sunday morning? Isn't that what this has been about? Isn't that what we can see together in the life of Jesus? Jesus did the community worship. He did those things. We read that it was his practice to attend synagogue. We read him participate in the reading of scripture in public. We see him go to the temple. He did the public things of worship like he was supposed to do. He even sang hymns with his disciples at meals. He did those things. But we really see the deep worship of Jesus' life in his everyday actions of compassion toward those who needed him. We see his true worship in his patience with those disciples for whom he was a teacher and a friend. We can imagine even that when he plied his father's trade, there weren't too many customers who were coming back saying, this chair that Jesus made, the craftsmanship's just not very good. He understood his father's heart. He knew that everything he was doing with his life was supposed to be worship, and so I'm sure he made the best chairs he could possibly make before he entered those three years of ministry because his life was worship. And Jesus commends to us this same kind of -of all-of-life worship. Rooted, formed, shaped in our worship together as a community. Modeled after the life of Jesus and led by the Holy Spirit into our homes and workplaces. Our neighborhoods and our schools. That our lives would so reflect that full life worship of Jesus that all we do in word or in deed might be in the name of Jesus and would be honoring to him. So let's go back a little bit. What about that Monday Ascension confusion that I've diagnosed us with? What about that strangeness that sometimes haunts us after our God-filled time together in community, which makes it so difficult to connect the rest of our lives to our life on Sunday? If we really believe that our lives are supposed to be lives of worship— perhaps we should be starting to look for those hallmarks of worship in our Monday to Saturday as well. As God calls us to worship together on Sundays, perhaps we should be listening for how God calls us into each day of our lives. Every morning when we wake up, we can listen for God's voice inviting us to work alongside him in the day that he had prepared for us while we were still asleep to partner with him in the work that is before us. As we practice patterns of thanksgiving and and confession and honesty in church together, we should seize opportunities in our everyday lives to continue those patterns of thankfulness and reconciliation, seizing every opportunity to be grateful, like Phil talked about, And every time we realize that maybe we haven't only been being Jesus in our words and in our actions, to be reconciled as quickly as possible to our neighbors who we've harmed and to the God who continues to call us even in those moments of straying. A year ago, I think, when Knox had Ken Shigematsu here to talk about his book and to preach for us, A member of my home church, we were talking in home churches about building spiritual trellises for our lives, healthy practices through the week that help us worship regularly. And one of the guys in my home church decided that through that week at least, every day he would have what he called thankfulness showers. He has to shower every morning, so why not be thankful to God while he's cleaning himself in the morning? to go through the litany of things for which he was grateful, to begin to build in these practices that he'd learned in church after years of life but never really brought into the day-to-day. That's what we should be doing too, finding the little places and times when thankfulness and praise would pour out from us in a regular pattern, maybe at the start of each day. So this pattern of worship... God speaks first, and we respond and enter into this dialogue of praise and honesty and learning with God. And then, at least in worship on Sundays, we know that God speaks blessing over us as we leave. God has the last word, too. So if we're thinking about Monday to Saturday as worship-filled lives if we hear God call us in the morning to the work ahead of us, if we spend that day of working in the name of Jesus, bringing glory to God, being thankful and reconciling in our work, then maybe at the end of those days, we should listen for God's words of blessing then too. God speaks last in our days. God promises he will give us those final words of blessings as we close our eyes and watch over us through the night, and we should know that he blesses us abundantly, trusting that this cycle will continue of God calling us into the work of our lives, which is our worship, God calling us in the morning and blessing us with rest and peace until he calls us again in the evening. As Jesus ascended, dumbfounded disciples looked on, waiting for something crazy to happen, waiting for Elijah and his chariot, perhaps, to usher in God's kingdom, waiting for a transfigured Jesus to descend again as they had seen before, waiting for something tangible. And they had to be called away and said, no, go about your lives. Jesus will come back, but not right now. And so they have this question of what's going to connect all that time that we spent with Jesus in our lives with everything that's supposed to come afterward. The answer for them was twofold. The first is the memory of Jesus drives them forward. We eat at the table together to remember the life and the ministry of Jesus and the memorial acclamation we say together that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again, is that work of memory in us, remembering the full life and ministry of Jesus. And so the memory of the time they spent with Jesus propels them forward. But the second thing is that promised Holy Spirit, the promised Holy Spirit that they had to wait for, but would guide them even as Jesus was before the Father, worshiping and interceding for all of humanity until that day which the Father had already set out by his own authority. So our ascension confusion. What is going to connect our time as a community together on Sundays with the rest of our weeks, with everything that comes after? And I think our answer is the same as the answer for those disciples on that day of the ascension. The first is our memory. We remember Sunday. Our memory of Sunday propels us through the week. We remember this rhythm that God speaks first and calls us, that we engage in conversation with God, working with God together through the middle of our days, and then God speaks last, blessing us. Whether we're filing reports or assisting clients, taking someone's blood pressure, marking exams, all of these things we should find we're doing in the name of Jesus for the good of the world and for the glory of God. And after we've done those things, we should be confident that God speaks last, blessing us and comforting us, even on the hard days. God speaks last if you'll listen for that voice of love and peace. Then the second thing Unlike those disciples, we do not need to wait for the promised Holy Spirit. But we know that the Spirit guides us into worship and goes with us when we leave. The Spirit which Christ sent has gone before us and gone behind us, enveloping us in that same conversation of worship which we experience together, which we experience together here in this time and which Christ is continuing for us even now before the Father in heaven. Our Monday morning ascension confusion. Where did you go, God? You were so close yesterday. Where are you now? What are we to do? That's answered in our memory of Sunday. It is answered in our consistent reenacting of what Jesus leads us into every Sunday and leads us into again by the Holy Spirit every day of our lives. Worship happens here and now. I'm not saying it doesn't. This is worship. God is present here. But you should find yourself worshiping all those other days too. Because worship of anything is never really confined to just when we're aware of it. So maybe this week we should all practice becoming a little bit more aware of it. We've learned this pattern of worship so well. God speaks first. We have a conversation. God speaks last. And so maybe this week, we pay attention to that. We listen for God speaking first as we rise. And then we have that conversation through the day, whether it's hard or easy, whether it's obvious how our work is God's work, or it needs a little bit of thinking about and then at the end of the day, we listen again when God speaks last. So learn these practices more and more this week. You've learned them well, learn them again. Learn them Monday to Saturday because I think we've left them on Sunday a little bit too often. And trust that God has not left you, that God will not leave you when you leave this place. That the God of Monday morning is also the God of Sunday morning. And that your life doesn't need to look that different because worship continues. And that you're going to meet the same God in your community and all those places where it seems like God maybe isn't very present. Because Jesus continues to lead you into worship through his ever-present spirit. Let's pray together. God, you call us into worship. You called us into worship this morning, and if we've been paying attention, you've called us into worship every day of our lives. And we pray that you would help us to become more and more attentive to your call, more and more attentive to your invitations to work alongside you, to seek your good and your justice wherever we find ourselves. And then we pray that you would help us to remember you as we sleep. To remember that you've been with us and you bless us again. We pray that you would truly be the God of our everything. That there would be no place in our lives, no peace of our hearts which would be untouched by you. That all of who we are would be a person of worship. That all that we do could be done in your name. And that when people look at us, you would receive the glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name, who intercedes for us even now. Amen.